So I was wondering which of my half-baked ideas I should put out for my next show. And then I saw something in the media which made me very angry. Very angry indeed. And that sent me hurtling down a rabbit hole as I decided that this topic was going to be the next episode. And then if I put that out, it's going to be an absolute banger and everyone would love it and all the awards would come raining down and there would be rewards and riches and wouldn't life be grand and the world would be changed forever after that. And then about halfway through, Uncle Dan Carlin released his biannual episode of Hardcore History and it was on exactly the same topic that I was going to do. So I don't know how this is going to go. So if I put that show out now, it's going to look like I was stealing from Dan Cartlin. And I mean, it's not like I don't steal from Dan. I straight up plunder a lot of his work a lot of the time, but it's just downright neighborly to give it a few months grace first. So that's what happened. You will get the show that I was working on, but I need to wait for the heat to die down first. Which of course meant that I had to come up with another show. And right quick, because I try to keep these things on a bit of a schedule. Not much, but I do make more of an effort than you might think. So I've had this show floating around the ether for a while now. And there was just recently a very logical time to release this show, but I didn't. Because that's exactly what they'd expect me to do. And that's when they get you. He quit blinking. He says that's when they get you. This show is about some of the most influential women in history, particularly those that you might not have heard of. And you might think that I would have pushed to release this show to coincide with Women's History Month, which was last month, but I like to be a bit of a maverick and not adhere to other people's schedules. Because Women's History Month is every month, am I right, ladies? Either that or these things always take way more research and time than I plan on and they're always late, but it's totally the first one, right? And what you should know before we kick off is that this is going to be a two-part episode. Hell, it might even be a multi-part episode all up. This is a rich vein of history. But I'm planning to do a top 10 and I'm splitting it into 5 and 5, which, if my maths is correct, equates to two episodes. And the reason I decided to do a dreaded multi-part episode was length. This was running super long. But there's actually a bigger reason. You see, I will be making my triumphant return to the world of stand-up comedy. I'm going to be doing a show at the Sydney Comedy Festival in May. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of this show if you make it that far. But writing and editing this comedy show is taking up a huge chunk of my time, so I'm banking some breathing room in regards to podcasting. So, two episodes. Alright, enough pre-rambling, let's get to the actual rambling. It's historical time. Two shows, my top 10 most badass women in history, as determined by no other metric than my own personal preference. In deferment to the global situation right now, I've included one Russian and one Ukrainian. I didn't plan things this way, but sometimes the podcast gods are kind to you. And because I'm me, I'm going to top and tail this thing with mathematicians. We're going to open strong with the dreaded mathematics, and the close of the next show will be another mathematician. That's a little teaser for the next show for you. 
If you're one of the few audience members that actually knows me IRL, you've probably already guessed who number one is, even though I said that this wasn't an ordered list. Anyway, here we go. The most important women in history, according to me. And the number one most important woman in history is, of course, my mum. Hi mum, love you, I've broadcast this all over the globe, this counts as your birthday present. I'm a good son. Everyone, say hi to mum. Alright, now that that's out of the way, let's get on with the best of the rest. The most important women in history, according to me. A man. Yeah, I'm going to mansplain history to you. Hypatia of Alexandria. You've got to have Hypatia of Alexandria on any list of the greatest women of all time. What an absolute girl boss. Born somewhere in the mid-300s CE, Hypatia was the daughter of a semi-famous mathematician by the name of Theon of Alexandria. I won't go into Theon because this is about Hypatia, but what you need to know is that Theon was a boss mathematician and a devout Neoplatonist, which means he was a fucking whack job. I will explore the beehive of crazy that is Neoplatonism in just a little bit, but if you imagine the architect from the Matrix, that, but it's a religion, and then you're in the ballpark. You have many questions, and though the process has altered your consciousness, you remain irrevocably human. Ergo, some of my answers you will understand, and some of them you will not. Concordantly, while your first question may be the most pertinent, you may or may not realize it is also the most irrelevant. So Hypatia was born in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, but at this point it was a Roman colony, because Caesar. And Hypatia was born the daughter of a very gifted, but more than somewhat insane mathematician who devoutly believed in antiquity's version of the Matrix. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the Matrix. We don't know exactly when Hypatia was born, because nobody really bothered to write that down. So all we can do is ballpark it to somewhere between 350 and 370 CE. We honestly don't know. Some historians back in the 19th century used to try and put an actual date on Hypatia's birth, because history used to be the Wild West and you could just say shit and it was up to other people to disprove you, but we don't do that anymore. That's only for podcasters now. For instance, the 19th century historian Richard Hoche said that Hypatia must have been born in 370 because everyone said that she was still smoking hot at the time of her death, which means that she can't have been more than 30 years old. That was honestly his rubric. We've got a record of a guy saying Hypatia was beautiful, which means that she was young because obviously older women can't be beautiful, and then we don't have any records of a man saying that she used to be hot but now she's a bit of a minger, so it's only logical that Hypatia died at the age of 30 because as soon as a woman turns 30, she is no longer fuckable. That's the rubric that he used. As I've said many times before, in the Victorian era, science was whatever the hell you wanted it to be. While it remains a burden assiduously avoided, it is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure of control. And this was the historical canon until very recently, when some more modern historians looked at Hypatia's life and went, what the fuck is this guy on about? So in short, we don't really know how old she was. So Hypatia was born in Alexandria, the world's foremost city of learning way back in the day, and she was the daughter of one of that city's leading mathematicians. Hypatia was always going to make waves. 
she would walk around in a tribon, which is kind of like a threadbare cloak that denoted that you were a philosopher who was too concerned with higher thinking to worry about things like fashion. So it was kind of exactly like Jedi robes. Because as anyone who has dabble in philosophy will tell you, it's not enough to actually be a philosopher. People need to know that you're out there philosophy-ing. Shut up, Google, that is to a word. So Hypatia would wander the streets of Alexandria in her tribon, looking like a philosopher, giving impromptu philosophy lectures. Now, this wasn't exactly unusual for antiquity. You couldn't walk five paces without some philosopher spitting some straight truth at you in the streets way back in the day. Or at least the kind of truth that was available back in that day. You'd get someone like Plato come up to you and grab you by the collar and scream about how there are five fundamental polygons that meet at the same three-dimensional angle, and then you'd say, hey, that's pretty cool, and then he'd scream something like, the triangle is the demiurge, the alpha and the omega from which the cosmic mathematics shapes us all, and then you'd be like, um, yeah, that's, that's cool, I've got to go over here now and not look at you anymore. Or you'd have Diogenes explaining how there's an irrevocable true logical process while masturbating in a public market. I really can't oversell how crazy most philosophers and mathematicians were back in the day. I absolutely will do a show on the topic, and soon, but none of them were exactly sane. Pythagoras died because he was being chased by assassins, and he refused to run through a field of lima beans because he thought that they were icky. That was literally the hill he died on. So that's what Hypatia was doing. She was spruiking some high-level mathematics and some next-level crazy philosophy known as Neoplatonism. None of us has the time in the day to tumble down this rabbit hole, but Neoplatonism is the brainchild of a guy named Plotinus, not Plato. This guy lived about 600 years after Plato, but they do have some crossover. And Neoplatonism is basically you have the good, or the one which is a single unity from which all things are derived. It's the perfect unity, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end of all things. But this one isn't God. It's kind of like the force, just kind of is. Now the one brings about the nous, which is the intellect. And the nous then ponders the nature of the one. And by pondering the orb, I mean pondering the one, the nous creates the soul. The soul then manifests itself as platonic solids. So a tetrahedron, a cube, octahedron, dodecahedron, and a cosahedron. And from platonic solids you get matter. So basically everything is made out of triangles. And that's what Neoplatonists believed. That and their ethical principles, which were basically that anyone could eventually attain oneness if they did good deeds and weren't a dick. It's not a bad religion as far as these things go. It's like Buddhism, but... Buddha is a rhombus. So I hope everyone's following along and none of that was too crazy. And this is what Hypatia and her father, Theon, believed in. This was their religion, magic triangles. And it isn't as weird as it sounds. A lot of people today believe in a magic zombie carpenter. I'm an atheist, it all looks the same to me. So anyway, Hypatia was a Neoplatonist, and remember that because it's going to become important later. And quick tangent here while we're on zombie carpenters. You know, there's no evidence that Jesus actually was a carpenter. We don't really know what he was. The Bible only mentions Joseph's profession, and even then, it's murky. The original word is the conic Greek tekton, which essentially just means tradie. So a tekton was anyone that worked with their hands. 
It could have been a carpenter, it could have been a stonemason, it could have been a potter. We can't really tell. It was only when King James came along with his Bible that we got carpenter, because the King James edition just straight up invents a whole bunch of shit when they couldn't be bothered actually translating a word. So that's how we get carpenter. In all likelihood, it was stonemason, given the building materials in Judea at the time, but we honestly have no idea. Jewish culture during the period dictated that a son take his father's profession, so we assume that Jesus was also a stonemason slash carpenter, but it's all just filling in the blanks. That and the fact that he's a fictional character in a fairy tale. Anyway, Hypatia grew up being educated by her father, Theon, and by adolescence she had surpassed him as a mathematician and astronomer. And Theon was pretty good, so Hypatia is next level. She then takes over his position as head of the University of Alexandria. They didn't call it the University of Alexandria back then, but you get the idea. And since Alexandria was known throughout the world as the city of intellectuals, Hypatia was the nerd queen of late antiquity. She wrote mathematics textbooks, refined astronomical instruments, she created a more refined version of long division, so if you hated doing long division in high school, Hypatia is the person to thank for that. Hypatia was one of the smartest people to ever live, and she was absolutely dominating her peers all over the world. Even her strongest critics admitted that, although they didn't agree with her opinions or her teachings, they had to respect the might of her intellect. And for the people who get antsy when I make a claim like that without citing it, the guy you're looking for is Theophilus, the 23rd Pope of Alexandria. Wrote a whole bunch of letters regarding Hypatia. According to the contemporary Athenian scholar Damascius, Hypatia herself was, quote, exceedingly beautiful and fair, end quote, although he's the only source we have on her physical appearance. But honestly, who cares? We're all sapiosexual here. Looks don't matter. And that's the way it was to the intelligentsia of the ancient world, too. There were no shortages of men who fancied wooing Hypatia, but she herself was what we know today as an asexual. She had just no interest in sex whatsoever. There's one rather famous story of a man who tried to court Hypatia, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. No meant later. And I know many of my female listeners know this all too well. So Hypatia tried letting him down gently, which didn't work. And then she tried being blunt, and the guy still didn't take the hint. So then Hypatia took her bloody menstrual rags, rubbed them in the guy's face, and that's when he finally took the hint. Apparently he was so traumatized that he fled Alexandria altogether, never to be seen again. So ladies, maybe keep that one in your back pocket. It's a good go-to. So we have Hypatia, smartest person in the world, advancing scientific understanding at light speed in the 400 CE. People are coming from far and wide to hear her lecture. She has a sizable following and considerable influence in the politics of Alexandria, which was an important part of the Roman Empire. And she was also, and I don't know if you caught this, she was also a woman. This meant that she was always walking a tightrope. And not only was she a woman, she was also not a Christian. She was a pagan. You can see where this is going. In the 400s, Christianity had just become the state religion of Rome. And you'll probably have some base level of understanding that Christianity does not play well with things like freedom of religion, ideas, critical thinking, and women being anything more than a silent broodmare. You can see how they might not like Hypatia. 
and then along comes a particularly odious dickwad by the name of Cyril, who was the new Christian bishop of Alexandria. Cyril was very new to the position of bishop. He was the nephew of the last guy who held the title, and it wasn't exactly legitimate that Cyril was supposed to get the job. There was a bit of nepotism involved, and a lot of people were upset about Cyril getting the position of bishop. So naturally, he wanted to swing his dick around and show that he was in charge. And Cyril didn't like the idea of anyone thinking about anything other than zombie carpenter sky wizard. And he didn't want them thinking about it too hard, because... They were in Egypt, and if anyone looked too closely, they'd see that Christianity was just Egyptian mythology wearing a fake moustache. Oh, and just like a good Christian, he also wanted to murder a whole bunch of Jews. This brought Cyril into conflict with the Roman governor of Alexandria, a guy called Orestes. Orestes was a reasonably chill dude for that day and age, and he didn't want anyone starting any religious wars in his famously secular city of learning. And Orestes didn't know what to do about this Cyril cat, so he called on his chief advisor, Hypatia. And Hypatia told him to chill out, to be fair and impartial. We don't want to start a religious war here in Alexandria. And Orestes agreed and sort of left the Christians alone. There was a bitter public feud between Orestes and Cyril, but the peace was nominally holding, thanks in no small part to the diplomacy of Hypatia. But eventually Cyril started up again with the dick swinging. There's one incident where Cyril's disciples start a riot in Alexandria, and it's really complicated, and it actually involves puppets. I'm not even kidding, but... No puppets, no puppets. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, you're that the, the Russians... Basically, the Christians start a riot and blame the Jews, which was the style at the time. Orestes, the governor, is badly injured in this riot. And that's when Orestes decides that he's had enough of this bullshit... And he gets the guy who started the riot, who was Cyril's chief henchman. Orestes has that guy arrested. <laughs> that pun only works written down, but still I'm going with it. He has this guy arrested and publicly tortured to death. You know, when in Rome, right? And Cyril is upset over his right-hand man being publicly tortured to death, but he can't square off against a Roman official. He can't directly challenge Orestes. So he decides to go after Orestes' chief advisor. Hypatia. That's much easier. He accuses Hypatia of witchcraft, because she's a woman who is smart and can read, and that's obviously witchcraft. Cyril says that since Hypatia can count higher than ten without taking off her socks, obviously she's a succubus sent by Satan to corrupt the world and the word of the Bronze Age desert survival guide that they've convinced themselves is the verbatim word of God. It's not much of a religion, but it's all they've got. In March of the year 415, Cyril and a posse of good Christian monks formed a lynch mob and ambushed Hypatia in the streets of Alexandria. They surrounded her chariot, dragged her off it, ripped off her clothes, and then brutally beat her to death and tore her limb from limb. It's just like Jesus preached on the mount. Quote, If a smart woman disagrees with your plan to exterminate all the Jews... Punch her in the back of the head when she isn't looking, and then get all of my disciples to beat her to death. End quote. Pretty sure it's in the book of Matthew somewhere. Go and look it up. Cyril's mob then went on and burned the university to the ground, and then they went and had a bit of a pogrom against the Jewish population because the guy was an absolute piece of shit. He dragged Hypatia's naked corpse around Alexandria as an example for anyone who thinks they're smart. 
This serial dude actually has a pretty wild history himself, but this story isn't really about him. But I know that all of you want to know if he gets what's coming to him, if he finally meets justice. And the answer is... Well... Kinda. Basically, nothing happens to Cyril for murdering thousands of people and the smartest person in the world, because karma doesn't exist and anyone who believes in it needs to take a look outside. But a few years down the track, Cyril is going to get in a fight with Nestorius, the guy I covered in episode 3 of the Mongol series. And in the process, Cyril tells the Roman Emperor, of all people, to go and fuck himself, which is not a good career move. The Roman Emperor declares Cyril a heretic, and Cyril has to go on the run and spends the rest of his life ducking and hiding from assassins and living in caves. So there's some justice there, but not much. Again, karma is not real. Hypatia's murder was a turning point in the politics of Alexandria. Other philosophers and mathematicians, fearing for their lives, fled the city never to return. Alexandria itself, once the great center of learning in the ancient world, you know, the great library of Alexandria fame, it would never again be the intellectual epicenter of the world. Hypatia's death has been described by more than one historian, classical and current, as the death of the classical world. Perhaps most galling is that the Christians, who, if we recall from 20 seconds ago, brutally murdered Hypatia in the street, the Christians co-opted Hypatia's life and death and rebranded her as St. Catherine of Alexandria, a totally fictional saint who never existed who shares exactly the same story as Hypatia, except this time she's a super awesome Christian woman fighting against the dreaded mathematics. And that's the story they ran with. The standing challenge remains. Try to find anything original in Christian scripture. I'll wait. An incredibly intelligent woman, a true polymath proven to be the superior of any man in mathematics, philosophy, astronomy, hell, even playing the liar. That's obviously a threat to Christianity, which is a very shitty religion that cannot survive any sort of examination. So the Christians spent hundreds of years tearing down Hypatia's memory, casting her as a witch and a tool of Satan who used her guile and ability to count numbers higher than ten to lead Christians astray, before they eventually just copied her and gave her a new name, just like they've done with everything all the time. In a quick note for my Australian audience, we have a federal election coming up next month, and the incumbent Prime Minister is an eschatological Christian nutjob who believes Jesus personally made him Prime Minister, and he's got a track record of abusing women, particularly smart women, so maybe remember this story when you go into the voting booth. We have called all of us for a time and for a season, and uh, God would have us use it wisely. So there you have it. Hypatia of Alexandria, one of the smartest people of all time, murdered on one count of being intelligent and one count of being a woman by disciples of the Prince of Peace. Julie Daubigny. So Julie Daubigny is basically every female fictional trope rolled into one, but she actually existed, and everything she did was utterly awesome. So let's kick off this story in an appropriately fantasy way. In 1687, a French court was convened in order to convict a woman of sodomy, kidnapping, 
desecration of corpses, and arson. The woman was found guilty and sentenced to be burned at the stake. Which would have been fairly gruesome if the woman had actually been present at the time. But nobody could find Julie Dorbigny. She was living on the run with her girlfriend, fighting tavern duels for money, before she eventually went on to become the premier opera singer of the 17th century. Like I said, this story is wild. Julie Dorbigny was born in Versailles to middle-class parents who worked at the palace. Her father was the personal secretary to the Comte d'Armagnac, the royal master of the horse. The master of the horse was the third most important person in France at the time. This meant that Julie was brought up being taught the skills of a page, such as reading and writing and mathematics and courtly graces, but also a lot of more practical skills back in the day, such as horse riding and fencing. When she was just 14 years of age, the Comte d'Armagnac took Julie d'Aubigny as his mistress, which might seem scandalous, but remember that A, this is the 17th century, and B, this is in France. But Julie wasn't about that life. She was what we call a power bottom. So she began an affair of her own with a guy named Saran, one of Europe's most prestigious swordmasters. There is only one god, and his name is death. And there is only one thing we say to death. Not today. So Julie Dorbigny is basically both of the Stark girls from Game of Thrones rolled into one, and maybe George R. R. Martin isn't quite as original as the fanboys claim, but that's all fine because all art is imitation. So anyway, Julie Dorbigny is having one scandalous affair with the Comte d'Armagnac, and another scandalous affair behind his back with the royal swordmaster, and she's not even 16 yet. And this went well for a couple of months before her lover, Saran, the sword guy, he accidentally killed a man in an illegal duel, which occasionally happens when you're one of the best swordsmen in the world. And there was a difference back then between legal duel and illegal duels, and it's kind of complicated, but there's a time and a place when you're allowed to murk someone with a sword, and this wasn't it, so he was declared an outlaw. What do we say to the god of death? Not today. So the two lovers have to go on the run. And it was at this point that Julie abandoned female clothes and began dressing as a man because it was much easier to run and fight in male clothes. And the two of them, they travel around Europe, hopping from tavern to tavern, where Julie became something like a traveling troubadour, as she had discovered she had an amazing singing voice. But they also financed their lifestyle by holding exhibition duels and betting on themselves. Now, not many people wanted to duel Saran on account of him being a world-renowned duelist who was on the lam for killing another man in a world-renowned duel, but these people would happily try their hand at dueling a woman, and Julie would soundly beat each and every challenger because she was also a blade master, and occasionally the men that she would beat in these duels would be outraged and claim that there was no way that a woman could beat them in a duel, and it had to have been an effeminate-looking man posing as a woman, at which point Julie Dorbigny would rip open her shirt and scream, Check out these bomb-ass titties! Proving her womanhood. 
On that ship there was a battle She amongst the rest did fight The wind blew off her silver buttons Her breasts were bared all snowy white Father And frequently this would result in a bomb roll in which Julie Daubigny would absolutely wreck everyone with her fists because she's fucking amazing. It wasn't long, however, before Julie became bored of Saran, because she wasn't keen on being tied down to just one lover in her life. So she turned her eye towards an attractive barmaid at a tavern, because traditional gender roles weren't going to get in the way of her fuck conquest of the Middle Ages. So Julie starts dating the barmaid, and this affair went on for a few weeks until the girl's parents found out. Naturally, they were mortified because of the whole lesbian thing. So they did what everyone did back in the day when a woman was being independent. They shipped her off to a convent. Now, this would deter a lot of people, but not Julie Dorbigny. No. She simply stole a habit, disguised herself as a nun, and broke into the convent to continue her debauched sexual escapades. And while she was there, she had congress with a few other nuns as well, because you never know when you're going to have another chance to break into a convent and fuck absolutely everyone there. This couldn't go on forever, though, and eventually Julie was discovered breaking into the convent to have deviant sex with everyone, and she was banned and forced to move on with her life. No, wait, no, that's not right. That's not what happened. No, okay. She had a different plan. Julie Dobigny was going to break her lady love out of that convent. So she did what I think most people would do in that situation. She found the corpse of a woman who had recently died. It was the 1600s, so people were dying all the time. Then she dressed the corpse up like a nun and put it in her lady love's bed to make it look like it was her that had just died. And the two of them made their escape. But for good measure, Julie Daubigny burned the whole convent to the ground because she was just freestyling at that point. And this is where we get Julie Daubigny tried in absentia for what is admittedly a bunch of shit she actually did. We're at the point where we started the story. So if she was ever caught, she was going to get the Joan of Arc's fireworks show. But first, they had to catch her, which wasn't going to be easy. Julie Daubigny was, one more time for effect, one of the best fighters in Europe, either with a sword or with her bare hands. It turns out that it didn't much matter, though, for another reason that is crazy convoluted. We're in the late 1600s France here. Who was the king of France in the late 1600s? You've probably heard of him. The Sun King, Louis XIV. Now, for reasons that we really don't have time to get into, Louis XIV was having problems with the Catholic Church. Essentially, Louis was trying to really hammer home that he was an absolute ruler, and he was trying to crush the power of the nobles and the church, going with the age-old concept that as king, he was divinely appointed by God. And since this meant that the church and the nobles would essentially have no power under Louis, they were fighting against this. So there was a bit of a cold war going on between the three estates. That's what I think of the fourth estate. What are the first three? Nobility, clergy, and commoners. Learn your French history. Okay. And then Louis hears about this totally rad woman who was a badass swordswoman going from town to town starting bar fights and who had just burned down a convent to kidnap her lesbian lover. Louis absolutely needed Julie Daubigny on his team. So he gave her a royal pardon 
and she had a clean slate. Louis then asked her if she could do anything that wasn't related to murder and mayhem, which was super cool and all, but we can't really be doing all of that at the court of Versailles. And Julie responds that she can carry a tune. And then she began to sing, and holy shit, she's one of the best singers in the world. So Louis appointed her to the Paris Opera Company, where she quickly became a star. But this is Julie Dorobini we're talking about here. So while she was now a famous, world-famous opera singer, which was one of the most prestigious things you could do back in those days, she wasn't going to stop being Julie Dorobini. She slept with pretty much everyone involved in opera, theatre, the arts, or high society at the time. Male or female, it didn't matter. She wanted the notches on her belt. And whenever someone got upset at this absolute alpha unit stealing their lover, she'd challenge them to a duel and then kick the ever-loving shit out of them. There's one famous account of how she appeared in the opera Cadmus and Hermione as the goddess Athena, who you probably know as the goddess of war, which is very appropriate. Well, the guy playing Cadmus was getting a little too handsy with the female cast, and that was Julie's job. So she beat him unconscious with her bare hands, and he never did it again. So, ladies, maybe keep that one in back pocket, too. Julie Daubigny finally pushed things too far when she attended a royal ball as the guest of Prince Philippe, the brother of Louis XIV. Philippe was a noted homosexual and cross-dresser, so he turned up to the ball in a full gown and earrings while Julie went as his date, dressed as a man. This turned heads. Then Julie began to hit on absolutely everyone at the ball, which is what she did, before finally making out with one of the most desirable debutantes right there on the dance floor. Dozens of men were trying to woo this particular woman that night, and Julie Dorbigny just did an open-mouth fuck-you-pash with her right on the dance floor. Three nobles challenged her to a duel because of this. She beat all three of them in minutes before returning to the party and necking a bottle of wine. And this was the final straw. Duels were explicitly banned during royal parties. She had broken the law rather severely, so much so that Louis XIV couldn't ignore it anymore. Her previous crimes had been against the church, and Louis was all about that. But this time, Julie Dorbigny had just broken the king's law. In front of the king. That's different. So Julie fled to Brussels, where she shacked up with a local prince while the heat died down because she never stopped being Julie Dorbigny. She returned to Paris a couple of years later, once said heat had died down, and became the prima donna of the Paris opera. Julie Dorbigny played the role of Clorinda in the opera Tancredi, an opera which was written by the world-famous composer André Camper specifically for Julie Dorbigny. And you know you've made it when a composer creates an opera specifically for you. The darling of the art world once more, Julie Dorbigny then hooked up with the famed Countess Madame le Marquis de Florensoc, to whom Julie was apparently passionately in love with. And when Madame Florensoc died in 1705, Julie Dorbigny slipped into an extreme depression and just sort of faded from history. The final thing we know about Julie Dorbigny is that she retired from public life by enrolling in a convent. And I guess we all know what that means. <whistles> 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 <whistles>
Henrietta Lacks. You probably haven't heard of Henrietta Lacks, which is as good a reason as any for putting her on this list. But the reason you might not have heard of her is because all the other women on the list did big and bombastic things in the past. Henrietta Lacks' contribution to humanity is all about the future. But first, we're going to need to take a bit of a detour. So, historically, medical experiments have been done on humans. The whole lab rat thing is kind of new in a historical sense. And before you get squeamish, don't worry, I'm not going to be talking through all the horrible things that have been done in the name of medicine, even though some pretty horrible things have been done in the name of medicine. So throughout the past, if you wanted to test a medical theory, you needed to get your hands on a human to do it on. And since most humans aren't keen on being experimented on, especially when those experiments are things like, hey, we want to open up your skull and have a look around, things you don't come back from, you get a lack of people volunteering. So throughout most of history, most experimentation was done on prisoners. And that's a gruesome aspect of history that we won't be going down today, but essentially back in the day, for the most part, there was no such thing as prisons. You didn't get sentenced to spend a period of time in a place deprived of your liberty. You had jails where people were held awaiting their sentence, but there wasn't anywhere that you just sort of went as a punishment. Convicts were sentenced to much quicker punishments, like having bits cut off, or being sent to the other side of the world as a slave, or being executed. And that's where the human experimentation came in. Scientists throughout history, but especially leading into the Victorian era, would petition the powers that be to say, look, since you're going to kill this person anyway, why don't you let us get our Frankenstein on and see what we can come up with first? And that worked for a while, until the world, rightfully, started to shift away from capital and corporal punishment. And while that was a huge win for humanism, it did mean that there was a downfall in scientific research. With less access to test specimens, less science was being done. Animal testing became the new norm. But there's only so much you can learn from testing on animals. If you look closely, there are some subtle but crucial differences between a rat and a human, which means that you can't make precise scientific observations. So there was a need for human specimens to experiment on, which meant that science needed volunteers, brave space monkeys, to sacrifice themselves on the altar of the future. But there was a problem with this. When you asked for volunteers for medical research, you weren't getting the best and brightest, obviously. Subjects were split into two main categories. There were relatively young people who were desperately looking for some quick cash, and very sick or elderly people who were rolling the dice on a miracle cure. And while there's some value to experimenting on these people, you're not getting a good sample set of humanity. Science needs a stable control on which to test results. You want the base conditions to be as similar as possible in order to test the reactions of all of your sciencing. And we weren't getting that. Now, there's a potential solution to this. What if we were able to take some human tissue, not even a full human being, but just some human goop, and test on that? That would allow us to do all of the testing that we want without having to murder people to do it. And that's a great idea. It's a fantastic idea. There's just one problem. Human tissue really likes being inside a human. It really does not like being outside a human. When you take a tissue sample, it begins to die. 
and this really limits science. Bummer. The holy grail of scientific research was a human cell line that could survive in a test tube and be replicated over and over again for research. But alas, such a thing is impossible. Until Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks, born Loretta Pleasant, was born in Roanoke, Virginia in August 1920. She was one of ten siblings born to a poor family, and she worked on a tobacco plantation from the time she was ten years old. She was forced to drop out of high school in grade six to support her family. She had her first child at the age of 14 to her childhood sweetheart, Day Lacks, who she would marry six years later. And Henrietta and Day Lacks did the best they could and they lived their lives as best they could, and they made as good as anyone could expect to for poor African Americans back in the 40s and 50s. They would have four more children, the last of which, Joseph, came in 1951. During this pregnancy, Henrietta complained of what she would call a knot in her stomach. After the birth, she suffered a severe hemorrhage, after which doctors sent her to Johns Hopkins for tests. Johns Hopkins at the time was one of the few hospitals which would treat black people because the past fucking sucks. Henrietta Lacks was admitted, tested, and it was determined that she had advanced cervical cancer. Ten months later, Henrietta Lacks died of this cancer. She was 31 years old. And this is absolutely tragic, of course. A young life cut short by a wicked illness... We don't know much about Henrietta Lacks herself, but by the accounts of her family, she was as warm and loving a person as he had ever wished to meet. When doctors first admitted Henrietta to hospital, they took a biopsy of her cancer, which was a standard procedure during the 1950s as it is today. The biopsy was looked over, cancer was diagnosed, treatment was futile. So far, so tragically same. However, when reviewing the biopsy of Henrietta Lacks' cancer, Doctors noticed something unusual, something miraculous. The sample of Henrietta Lacks' cancer cells didn't die. In fact, they replicated in a Petri dish. The sample would double every 24 hours. Henrietta Lacks' cells would not die. They were functionally immortal. From this, scientists, specifically Dr. George Guy, were able to establish what is called a cell line. Without getting too sciencey, cell lines are a stable body of cells which allow experimentation. Henrietta Lacks' cells were able to be kept alive outside of the host, meaning that science now had human cells that they could experiment on indefinitely. And again, without getting too sciencey, Henrietta Lacks had a one in quadrillion mutation to her basic genetic code that essentially made her cells into wolverine. Not her personally, unfortunately, but her cells. Basically, she had a super rare, super virulent version of the human papillomavirus, or HPV, which is what caused the cervical cancer that killed her, but it also happened to mutate the portion of her genome that triggered cell death, basically switching off the part of her system that made her cells age and die. So she was Wolverine. Her cells could be grown in a vat forever. Science had a permanent, viable, ethically sound human test subject. And there's no way of adequately explaining in words just how earth-shattering this development was for science. 
All kinds of things were suddenly possible. Henrietta Lacks' cells were the first instance of human cloning. Her cells were replicated and sent all over the world to assist in developing groundbreaking medicines. Henrietta Lacks unfortunately died in 1951, but because of her remarkable cellular structure, four years later, one Dr. Jonas Salk was able to use those cells to create a vaccine to polio. A disease which had ravaged humanity since prehistory was suddenly gone. Henrietta Lacks' cells were crucial in the development of AIDS and HIV treatment. They were directly responsible for the HPV vaccine. There are over 11,000 patents for medicines derived from the cells of Henrietta Lacks. And because of the way that scientific nomenclature works, the first two letters of a person's name is how a cell line is determined. And so from Henrietta Lacks, we get what is known as the HeLa cell line, which is something that I'm hoping a bunch of you are right now going, oh yeah, I've heard of that, HeLa cells, yeah. Human Genome Project, I get it. Like most of the women on my list, Henrietta Lacks died tragically and very young, and her tale is not as dramatic or operatic as the others, but nobody else in history can claim that billions of people owe them their lives. Henrietta Lacks can. I'm already comfortable saying this, but as science gets more and more advanced, the evidence keeps mounting. Henrietta Lacks might be the most important person to have ever lived. And now you know who she was. Marina Raskova. Marina Malinina was born to an opera singer father and a music teacher mother in the USSR. So if you're unfamiliar with her, you're probably thinking that she's involved in music in some way. No. Unfortunately, she suffered an inner ear infection that affected her hearing, leaving her to unable to practice music as she had. So Marina Molinina became fascinated with chemistry instead as a way of coping. And she went to work in a dye factory as a chemist exploring colors. And it's there that she met her future husband, Sergei Raskov, who was an engineer at the dye factory. So Marina Raskova, née Malanina, must be a scientist, right? Well, in 1930, Marina got a new job. This time with the Russian Air Force. She's one of Russia's most famous pilots of all time. Only Yuri Gagarin is more of a Russian hero than Marina Raskova, and he had to leave the planet to get that far ahead of her. In 1933, Marina Raskova became the first woman to become a navigator in the Soviet Air Force. Within a year, she had her pilot's license and she became the first female flight instructor. In 1938, she attempted to set a world record for long-distance flying, from Moscow to Komsomolsk, which was about 6,000 kilometers away. She was the navigator for a modified bomber dubbed the Volinia, which means motherland. The crew were all women, with pilot Polina Osipenko and co-pilot Valentina Grizodobova. The flight took 26 hours, and when they were approaching the airfield at the end of it, they found that they couldn't find said airfield because the weather was so terrible because it was in Russia. They were going to have to crash land, which is a bad thing to have to do at the best of times, but it's even worse when you're crashing in the Russian wilderness because Russia. Now, this is a bad situation, but it gets even worse. Marina Raskova, unlike the pilot and the co-pilot, was in the navigator's cockpit, which on this particular aircraft was at the bottom front of the plane. 
i.e. the place that was going to take the entire force of a crash landing, and there was no hatch for her to move anywhere else in the plane. She couldn't get out of the way of the crash landing that was about to happen. But this is Marina Raskova we're talking about. No dramas. She puts on a parachute, opens up the exterior hatch of the navigator's cockpit, and just dives out of the plane. No food, no water, no medical kit, no survival kit, no worries. She just parachutes into the Russian forest, which, as we've discussed many times, contains vampire werewolves. Meanwhile, the plane carrying the other two crash lands about a hundred kilometers away. The other two crew are fine, but it takes eight days for Soviet rescue forces to find them because, again, it's in Russia. And when the rescue operation shows up, the pilot and the co-pilot won't leave without Raskova. So they sit there and they wait. And two days later, Marina Raskova shows up. So ten days in total. She managed to find the crash site without any sort of navigational aid, without any sort of supplies, without food, without water, and presumably having fought off Dracula to get there. The three of them are all safely rescued, and they all receive a Hero of the Soviet Union medal. They were the first women ever to do so. So Marina Raskova and co, they're already the most famous women in the USSR. But it gets even more hectic. Three years later, the Nazis decided to break a treaty and sneak attack Russia. Even though Russia had Marina Raskova in it. That should have been a red flag. Marina Raskova, she's not about Nazis. She hates Nazis. So she bursts into Stalin's office, which she can do because she's a hero of the Soviet Union, and she said, I hate these Nazi fucks. Give me a squadron of bombers so that I might rain death upon them. And Stalin says to her, well, I would, but I don't have any pilots to spare for your bombers. And Marina says, well, that's fine. I can train up some women to do it. And Stalin says, okay, but... We'll do that, but there's not enough parachutes. You're going to have to do it without parachutes. And Marina says, yeah, that's fine. I don't plan on being shot down anyway. No parachutes is fine. And then Stalin says, well, we don't have any planes to spare. You're going to have to do it in old-fashioned World War I biplanes. And Marina says, yep, sure, whatever, as long as it can carry bombs. And that is how the 46th Guards Night Bomber Regiment was born although they're probably better known by the name the Germans came up with. Die Nachthexen, the Night Witches. These are some of the most badass women in history. Flying their old-school biplanes without parachutes, they knew they'd be torn apart by anti-aircraft guns or Messerschmitts if they flew during the day like normal people. Because biplanes are slow and they have a low ceiling for stalling, they can't even fly high enough to evade fire. So they flew at night, and the night witches would fly evasively at night, again without parachutes, they didn't get do-overs, and they'd navigate at night until they were a couple of kilometers away from their targets. And then they'd cut the engines and glide the rest of the way before dropping a bomb and then hitting the thrusters again. German soldiers on the ground had absolutely no warning. The first thing they'd hear would be the sound of something like a lawnmower kicking in, which meant that the bomb had already been dropped and there was no chance of getting to cover. Germans considered them to be some kind of supernatural force because they struck without making a sound. 
thus Dinarchthexen, the Night Witches. They were the first women in history to weaponize the silent treatment. Yes, that joke was in Jacques Barrett's festival show, but I honestly don't remember who wrote what anymore. It's a house bit. Deal with it. Don't do it, Murph! And it was all thanks to Marina Raskova, one of many Soviets that Hitler made the mistake of pissing off. Marina Raskova died in 1943 when her plane crashed in a training accident, although it is entirely possible that she piloted her plane into hell itself to continue fighting Nazis. It's totally in keeping with her character. Olga of Kiev. Alright, we had a Russian, now we need a Ukrainian to maintain fairness. Olga of Kiev makes John Wick look like a peaceful and forgiving monk. Yes, John Wick, that's right. It's fashionable these days for everything to be saying, uh, don't mess with Ukraine, but if you know your history, you know Ukraine has been a nation of fuck around and find out since before they became Ukraine. And Olga of Kiev might be the most Ukrainian Ukrainian that ever Ukrained. Olga was born in the late 9th century. We don't really know because record keeping wasn't tip-top back then. Sometime before 912, she married Prince Igor, who was the son of Rurik of Lagoda. If you've listened to my Ukraine show, then you should know who this dude was. Rurik of Lagoda was a Viking who took over Kievan Rus because everyone wanted an awesome Viking man to be in charge of the fractious kingdom of Kievan Rus, which, as I pointed out in the show, is exactly what you'd expect a Viking to say if he just conquered the place. But whatever actually went down, this Rurik of Lagoda dude was the most successful ruler that Kievan Rus had in place until Vladimir Zelensky, so he was getting it done. And he had a son named Igor, and Igor married a woman by the name of Olga, and they lived in the capital of Kiev, before it became Kiev, and that's how we get Olga of Kiev. We don't really know much of her life before all of this happened because it wasn't deemed important by the chroniclers, but what came later could not be ignored by history. So Igor of Kiev was out one day doing some kinging, and he kissed Olga on the cheek and he said goodbye to their three-year-old son, and he popped out the door to go to work as a Middle Ages king in the noted shitstorm that was Kievan Rus. And on this particular day, Igor's job was to collect taxes from within his kingdom. And he's riding about on his horse with his honor guard when he strolls up to the lands of a Slavic tribe by the name of the Dravillians. And the conversation went a little something like this. You owe me some tribute for allowing you to live on these lands in accordance with the feudal system. Fuck you, we're not going to pay, we don't feel like paying taxes, get the hell out. And things sort of devolved to the point where the Dravillians killed poor old Igor. Since Igor's son was only three years old at the time, this caused some problems. He was too young to take the throne, so his mother, Igor's wife, Olga of Kiev, she claimed the throne as regent until the boy could come of age. Fairly standard stuff. And by all accounts, she had the full backing of the Rus army as regent, because Olga seems to have been quite popular. And again, this isn't without precedent. There have been tons of female regents through history. I'm going to have another one in the next show, so... It's not exactly uncommon, but it wasn't all peaches and cream either. The Dravillians, well, it turns out that these guys were proper dicks. Not only did they kill Igor, the rightful ruler, but they weren't too keen on having a woman boss them around either. So they decided to send a marriage proposal to Olga, where she would wed Prince Mal, the prince of the Dravillians, and the Dravillians would, through marriage, 
inherit pretty much the entirety of the kingdom of Kiev and Rus, and ownership of one of the biggest cities in the world at the time, Kiev. And please, just take a moment to consider the sheer blarneys it takes for these Dravillian twits to do what they did. First off, they didn't pay their taxes. You gotta pay your taxes, that's how they got Al Capone. They didn't pay taxes to the point where the crown prince was sent around to collect the taxes. Then, instead of paying taxes, they decided to commit regicide and murdered the crown prince in cold blood. This is a dick move. Then, and again marvel at the sheer brazen gall it takes to do this, instead of any sort of contrition or bridge building, they send a marriage proposal to the widow of the guy they just killed, suggesting that she cede the kingdom to them. If nothing else, you have to admire the sheer fucking balls this takes. And I mean, as you've probably gathered by the fact that I'm doing a podcast about this, things don't end up going too well for the Dravillians, but wow, you have to admire the hustle. Rise and grind, baby. Now, something unusual was happening on the home front. It appears that Olga and Igor, in defiance of the societal norm at the time, they actually loved each other. Weird, right? Married, but loved each other. But that's how it was. And Olga hears that this rival tribe has murdered her husband, the father of her child, and instead of saying sorry, they want to marry her. Well, she doesn't take it very well. Or she takes it exceptionally well. There are two schools of thought. I'll tell you the story, and I'll let you decide. Oh, and by the by, I'll be citing the primary chronicle here. It's the go-to text for all things Kiev and Rus. You guys should be familiar with this one by now. So the Dravillians send a bunch of ambassadors to Kiev to offer their proposal of marriage to Olga. Which is, quick recap, Hey, we murdered your husband, and we don't think a woman should be running the country. How about you marry one of the guys that killed your husband, and we'll take all of that tricky thinking out of your hands. It has to be one of the most condescending proposals of all time. And Olga was incredibly composed. According to the Chronicle, she said to these envoys, quote, Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise from the dead, but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried to your boat. End quote. And the context there is that the ambassadors had come by boat. They traveled down the Dnieper River to get there, which, you know, probably thought. Anyway, what Olga was saying was, go back to your boat, have a bit of a rest, and then tomorrow I'll get guys to actually come and pick you up in your boat and carry you through the city, and then we'll have a big party. Then Olga had her men dig a huge trench just outside the walls of Kiev. The next morning, she sent for the ambassadors. And as proposed, the ambassadors said, we're not going to walk through the streets and we're not going to ride horses. Get a bunch of your servants to carry our boat through the city. And Olga did just that. And a bunch of servants carried this boat carrying the ambassadors through the city. And these ambassadors thought they were king shit because they were being carried through the city in a fucking boat, which you have to admit is a pretty boss thing to have happen. The Dravillian ambassadors were so enraptured with being carried through the city 
on a freaking boat that they didn't notice that they'd been carried past the castle and out the other side of the city. They did notice it, however, when the servants dumped them and their boat in the huge hole that had been dug just outside the gates. And that's when Olga peers over the edge of the ditch and says, quote, Is this honor to your tastes? End quote. And then she ordered that the hole be filled in, with a half dozen ambassadors and their boat being buried alive. But Olga is just getting started. While the muffled cries of the envoys were still underfoot, she sent for her scribes and she had them draft a letter. She addressed this letter to Prince Mal of the Drevelians, the guy who had proposed to her and had killed her husband. And in this letter, she said something to the effect of, Yes, I've just met your ambassadors and I really dug what they had to say. There's a whole lot to like about this marriage. In fact, you could say that I just had all of your ambassadors buried alive and they're slowly suffocating right now. (laughs) Wait, scratch that one. What she did send was a letter saying that she'd met with the ambassadors and she wanted to proceed with the marriage. And then she said that she wanted the wedding to be as awesome as possible. So Prince Mal should send her an honor guard of his best warriors to escort her to the prince's castle for the wedding, as befits a queen. And she fires off this letter to Prince Mal. Now, because of how communication worked back then, Prince Mal had no idea that his diplomats had all been horribly murdered. The first news he hears is this letter from the woman he wants to marry, saying that she'd love to marry him. He is stoked. So to honor Olga's request, he gets together a few dozen of his best knights and he sends them off to Kiev to escort his new fiancée back to the castle for the wedding. These knights travel all the way to Kiev and they meet Olga in the castle and they ask her where the diplomats are. And Olga winks and says something like, I'm sure they're around here somewhere. And then she suggests that the knights must be weary from such a ride to Kiev. It was such a long way to come. Wouldn't you love to have a hot bath while she just goes and tries to find the ambassadors for them? They're around here somewhere. And the knights, they agree. That would be a great idea. Yes, we'd all love a hot bath. Who doesn't like a hot bath? And off they go to the bathhouse, which was like a big communal sauna. When all the knights had disrobed and started steaming themselves in the sauna, Olga had the doors to the bathhouse locked and boarded over from the outside And then she had the whole bathhouse set on fire, slow roasting nearly 50 of Prince Mal's best fighters. Then Olga gets together a crew of her own best fighters and trots off to attend her wedding to Prince Mal. So she rocks up at one of the Drevelian cities with her own honor guard and says that she's there to attend the wedding. The Drevelians ask where their own knights are and Olga says, yeah, they're feeling a bit hot after their bath. They'll probably be along a little bit later. All good then. The wedding is all set up to go ahead, but Prince Mal isn't in right now. He's off doing some prince stuff. Is it possible for Olga to just wait a few days for him to get back? Olga says, yeah, sure, that won't be a problem. But one thing, she says, in all of this excitement and all of the murders that totally didn't happen, I didn't have a chance to properly mourn my dead husband. Is it all right if we have a feast in his honor? You've got to remember that Kievan Rus was Viking territory back then. It was how they did things. Someone dies, you throw them a feast. And the Trevelyans say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's have a feast honoring the late Prince Igor, the guy that we murdered in cold blood. Remember, Vikings, 
none of them twigged that this might be a bad idea. So they have a feast. And as you do at a Viking feast, everyone's getting good and hammered. So hammered, in fact, that none of the Dravillians seem to have noticed that neither Olga nor her knights were drinking at all. When all of the Dravillians were good and drunk, Olga and her men proceeded to start slitting everyone's throats. The Primary Chronicle says that they murdered over 5,000 Dravillians that night, which historians agree seems to be a bit on the overinflated side, but the point remains. Olga of Kiev walks out of the Mead Hall, covered in blood like Carrie, and finally declares open war on the Dravillians. She gathers her army, which is most of the forces of Kievan Rus at the time, and proceeds to start wiping the Dravillians off the map. They finally besiege Iskorotsin, the capital city of Dravillian territory at this time, and in a fun bit of dramatic irony, the place where the Dravillians had originally murdered Olga's husband, Igor. The siege apparently went on for over a year. The Dravillians had absolutely no chance of defeating the Rus' army, and they had no allies to call on because they were dicks, but on the other hand, they had a really well-fortified city that the forces of Olga couldn't quite crack, so the siege went on. Finally, Olga has an idea. She calls a parley. So she meets with Prince Mal personally under a banner of truce. Olga suggests that Mal surrender. Mal responds that he would very much like to surrender, but he's quite certain that Olga is going to torture him to death on account of how many people she had outright tortured to death up until that point. Olga responds that he has a valid argument there. She had indeed murdered many people. But she insists that she's all murdered out and she'd like to put all of this behind her. Can we all just be friends? She asks for a token tribute from Prince Mal, a symbol of peace, and all will be forgiven. She asks Prince Mal to bring her as many doves as he can find, because the dove is the symbol of peace. And that will be the blood price to forgive the murder of her husband, and everyone will be able to go free, clean slate, we all live happily ever after. Mal responds that this is a good idea, but doves are hard to come by, especially since his city has been besieged for over a year and they've got no supplies whatsoever. Olga sympathizes with this predicament, and she has a bit of a think, and she says, yeah, okay, fair point. I'll tell you what, go and get your men to gather as many pigeons as they can. A pigeon's just like a dove, it's the same thing, that'll do in a pinch. Prince Mal and the Dravillians are utterly stoked at this. They're getting off easy. They go back, and they go through all of the roofs and all the trees in the city, and they gather up every pigeon that they can find, and they hand them over to Olga as tribute. And Olga takes all these pigeons and she says, yep, yeah, that's great, that's awesome. All right, tomorrow we'll hammer out a peace treaty. She goes back to her camp and Mal goes back to the city. And that night, Olga orders her men to take every pigeon and coat them all in sulfur. She then has a fuse tied to the leg of every pigeon. And then she gets her army to light the fuses and send each pigeon into the air. Pigeons being pigeons, they immediately flew back to their nests in the city. Nests that were all in the thatch roofs of all of the houses of Iskarotsin. The pigeons got home, the fuses ran out, the fuses ignited the sulfur on each pigeon, and each and every pigeon, at pretty much the same time, exploded into a fireball. The entire city of Iskarotsin went up in flame instantly, and it burned hot enough that the stone walls began to glow. 
According to the Chronicle, less than 10% of the city's population managed to escape, and each and every one of them was either gutted on the spot or sold into slavery. And Olga of Kiev went on to become one of the more successful rulers in the history of Kievan Rus, instituting many reforms and turning Kiev into one of the great trade cities, and all of this was accomplished with no red tape because absolutely no one was willing to fuck with Olga of Kiev. Oh, and of course she was canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church, so that's Saint Olga of Kiev to you. Christianity is a religion of peace, after all. Olga of Kiev was also a prominent force defending the Principality of Kievan Rus from Turkic aggression in her later years, which, if nothing else, tells you that Vladimir Putin isn't tip-top on his history. If you fuck around with Ukraine, you gonna find out. And there we have it. The first five in what will probably be a top 10 list of women in history that I think deserve a bit more attention. Next time, I'll be featuring one of the greatest pharaohs of all time, a civil war secret agent that you better know as someone else famous for something else, an utter failure of a general who somehow got good press that coats how absolutely awful she was, the greatest pirate of all time, and another one of history's greatest mathematicians because, hey, I'm me. Thank you so very, very much for listening. I really hope you had as much fun as I did, because I had a hell of a lot of fun doing this show. As ever, if you did like the show, I urge, but I do not demand, please reciprocate by tickling the algorithm in my favor, which helps other people like us find this show and we can all have fun together. You guys are doing absolutely great work by liking and sharing and reviewing and whatnot, and that is absolutely awesome. Please keep that up. If you'd like even more of this than you currently get, there is something that you can do. You can head on over to Patreon and you can support the show in a concrete way. For the price of a cup of coffee a month, you get bonus stuff. Most prominent of which is at least one bonus show every month. That's right, you can double your HGT pleasure. Last month, patrons got a deep dive into Ukrainian tactics in the current war, and in a couple of weeks, they're going to get a show about how Colonel Sanders is haunting Japanese baseball. So if you'd like in on that action, patreon.com slash historygotime. And I very much appreciate your patronage because I'm the stereotypically underappreciated starving artist. And finally, as I said at the start of the show, I am doing a live show at the Sydney Comedy Festival. If you're going to be in Sydney in mid-May, or you know someone who will be, I would absolutely love to see you there. The show is called Vivictus, and it's going to be an absolute blast. I personally think it's the best show I've ever written, and I've been well-reviewed in the past. You can go ahead and fact-check me on that one. The reviews are online somewhere. Anyway, this show is a limited run, and tickets will sell out fast, so I strongly urge anyone interested to purchase online. I can't guarantee there'll be room on the night. You can head to sydneycomedyfest.com, that is sydneycomedyfest.com, or you can visit my website at smokefromhome.com and it'll point you in the right direction, or you can head on over to Ticketek and they'll sort you out, but you do want to get in early. Damien Smith, Vivictus, I hope to see you there because it will be an absolute blast. I am looking forward to it so much. That's it for me. I hope you had fun. I'll catch up with all of you in the near future when we do part two of this show that I am avoiding actually saying the title of because that's always the last thing I come up with when I upload it. That's it for me. Later skaters.